And you may be seated. This time we do indeed want to come before God's Word together to study it. So we're going to be looking at that passage that was just read a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 6. But I think it's only right that before we open God's Word, we allow Him to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message He has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, we do indeed give you thanks that you in this new year have gathered us together that we may begin it with the right perspective in mind, that we might be looking forward to what you will do in the coming year, feeling well-equipped and well-prepared. And so, Lord, as we open your word together, we ask that you would indeed give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would indeed be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in 1996, a movie came out called Courage Under Fire that starred Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan. And by the way, if you have not seen this movie, I think it is honestly some of the best acting from these two, actor, uh, from these two actors uh, that they've done in their career. It's, a, it's an amazing film that's set just after the Gulf War. And Denzel Washington's character, he plays a lieutenant colonel who is uh, tasked with investigating the story behind Meg Ryan's character. She was a uh, helicopter pilot in the military who lost her life on a rescue mission. And uh, the president is considering bestowing upon her the Medal of Honor, and this, this would have been the first Medal of Honor given for a combat operation to a woman. And so, of course, they want to make sure that, that she is worthy of this medal, even though it's being uh, given to her posthumously. And so they, they, they tell Denzel Washington, we want you to investigate, talk to her unit, make sure that she did indeed, you know, do what, what we'd be giving her this medal for. And, and so the, the story really follows his investigation, but the movie opens with a very fascinating scene. It actually opens with his own story of, of his own service in the Gulf War. We find out that he was actually uh, in command of an armored tank battalion. And they were on a mission at night. When suddenly they find that they are being fired upon by the enemy. And, and because it's dark, they have no idea where the enemy fire is coming from. And, and he's in his tank. He's talking to his gunner. He's saying, we need to find a target. We have to fire back. We have to respond. And, uh, and his gunner's looking. He says, I think I've got one. I think I've got a target. He's just like, are you sure? Do you, are you sure you have a target? He's like, yeah, I'm sure. He says, fire. They hit the tank. And then they hear one of the most horrifying things over the radio. You've hit one of our own. And in that moment, he realizes there are enemy tanks within their line. And until they can figure out which tanks those are, they are vulnerable. And so in, in this uh, sudden brilliant move, he radios all the other tanks in their unit. And he says, everybody, turn on your lights. Turn on your lights right now. And the moment they turn on their lights, suddenly the enemy tanks are revealed because they're the only ones without lights on. And they're able to, to defeat the enemy tanks. They end up winning the battle. But it came at the cost of the lives of their fellow soldiers. They found that they had been firing on their friends. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is because sometimes I think we get into fights not realizing that we're firing on our friends. That maybe we're firing on allied forces and we don't even realize it because we're in the dark. I know we're entering a new year, but as I look back to 2020, what I saw was I saw a lot of conflict in 2020. 
A lot of racial tension, a lot of political tension, a lot of socioeconomic tension. And if you were spent any time on any of the social media platforms, if you spent any time actually watching news media, what you saw is people attacking one another. Liberals attacking conservatives, conservatives attacking liberals, different racial groups attacking one another, uh, friends attacking friends, family attacking family, uh, Christians attacking Christians. And I have to wonder, as I look back at 2020, were we maybe firing on our friends and our allies? Who really is our enemy? Who, who are we actually engaged in a battle with? See, oftentimes when I talk to fellow Christians, they say, well, you know, it's the culture. That's, that's what we, we got to engage in the culture wars. The culture is, is wandering away from God, and so we need to, we need to fight and, and kind of defend our rights. And other times people say, well, it's, it's, the, it's whatever the opposite political party is, okay? It's the rise of liberals, or it's the rise of conservatives, and, it's, and, and they're the ones that we need to do battle against to kind of protect our rights or to defend our freedoms and so on and so forth. But when we look at what Scripture tells us, Scripture tells us that we actually have a much more important battle that really lies behind everything else. It's something that we read in Ephesians chapter 6, that passage that we were looking at this morning, where Paul writes, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says that there is a spiritual battle that's taking place behind all of these things. And until we shine light on it, we're going to continue firing in the dark at our friends. Until we shine light on it, we're not going to be able to see the real battle that, that really is worth the cost of fighting, the, fo- the cost of waging. And we stand to lose. And so that's why we're calling this series Strong in the Lord. We're going to be looking at this passage over the next several weeks, just this one text. We're going to be looking at the armor of God. We're going to be trying to understand what is the battle that we're in and how do we fight it well. So that we're not firing on our friends. So that we're not waging war against the people that we're called to reach. But rather we are engaged in a spiritual struggle. One in which we are dependent on God and we are fighting in ways that are reflective of his ways and of his character. That's really what this whole series is going to be about. But to start, I want us just to look at the opening passage, the the opening verses of this text, Ephesians 10 to 13. Because in Ephesians 10 to 13, we kind of set the stage, we set the groundwork for everything else that's going to come after it. And as I was kind of reading and preparing for this message, I, I came across a sermon by Tim Keller in which he does a brilliant job, I think, breaking down these few verses into three key things. And, and I want to give him credit where credit is due because I thought that this was extremely helpful. He says, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, we learn three things. We learn, first of all, who we're fighting, what we're fighting, and how to fight. Who we're fighting, what we're fighting, and how to fight. And so I want us to first and foremost look at who we're fighting. This is what Paul says. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
See, what Paul tells us is he tells us that we actually do have a very real, a very personal enemy, one who is out to divide and to destroy, but that enemy is not flesh and blood. That enemy is spiritual. That there is a spiritual realm. That there is such thing as spiritual evil and that it is behind so much of the evil that we see. Now, now Paul isn't minimizing the fact that humans too can do evil. That there can be evil things that, that we ourselves of our own volition participate in. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, but if you think that that is the only stage on which you are fighting, you're missing the greater enemy who's behind it all, the one who's orchestrating all of this. It says, and you need to be aware of that struggle if you are to fight well and wisely. And, uh, and I know that many people in our modern world kind of struggle with this idea of, uh, this, of spiritual evil. There are many people who are skeptical about it and say, really, a spiritual evil? I mean, isn't that a little bit too simplistic? There are others uh, within the church who maybe put a little bit too much emphasis on the reality of spiritual evil, looking for devils under every single rock, blaming uh, the devil for every single thing that's done, and, and almost being a little overzealous about this spiritual battle. Which is why I think C.S. Lewis has some wise words for us. Words that he wrote in his introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is an incredible book. It's, it's a fictionalized account of one demon writing to another demon, giving this younger demon, this junior demon, some advice on how to tempt human beings and how to overcome them. But in his uh, prologue, when, when Lewis was explaining why he decided to write this book, this is what he said. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence— The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What Lewis is basically saying is he's saying, on the one hand, we need to be aware that there is this spiritual battle going on. Because you can't fight a war that you don't know that you're in. You can't fight if you don't know who your enemy is. Is. You need to be aware that this is the struggle that's going on. But on the other hand, we need to recognize that this is one piece of a bigger struggle, right? And that often we assign too much uh, strength, too much power, too much energy, and too much attention uh, to the devils and to the demons and, and, to, and to Satan. And he says, really where our attention needs to be focused is our attention ultimately needs to be focused on God, the one who himself can actually give us victory in this battle. And so he says we, we shouldn't fall into either one of these two errors. We shouldn't fall on one side or the other, but rather approach this sober-mindedly. And I think that this is important to acknowledge because of the fact that it gives us a very nuanced understanding of evil. And there's plenty of evidence for it coming even from the scientific community. I remember reading in 2016 this incredible article in the Wall Street Journal in which Dr. Richard Gallagher, who's a professor of clinical psychology at New York Medical College, wrote an article in which he said the following. He said, as a psychologist, I diagnose mental illness, but I also help spot demonic possession. I have personally encountered these rationally inexplicable features of possession along with other paranormal phenomena. My vantage is unusual. As a consulting doctor, I think I've seen more cases of possession than any other physician in the world. A professor of clinical psychology in the Wall Street Journal 
highlighting the fact that, that the reality of spiritual, real, uh, of spiritual evil is true. Saying, as somebody who is in clinical psychology, I can attest that there are certain things that I have seen that cannot simply be assigned to the psychological or the physiological. That there are things which can only be assigned to the spiritual, that there's plenty of evidence for this. And what's helpful to note that I think both Lewis is saying, that Gallagher is saying, that ultimately Paul is saying in this text is by acknowledging spiritual realities, it actually doesn't make our approach to evil simplistic. It actually makes it much more nuanced. It makes it much more robust. It makes us much more able to, to look at these challenges and these problems that we encounter with a, a much more holistic perspective. In fact, it was Richard Baxter, the great 17th century uh, Puritan uh, writer and minister, who, who said when it comes to, to, to spiritual evil, we need to recognize not only its reality, but how it actually helps us to address complex problems. In much the same way that wars are waged on multiple fronts. Wars certainly are waged on the military front. But they're also waged on the political front, they're waged on the economic front, and they're waged on the propaganda front. That when you look at modern warfare, any, any good general, any great tactician would say you need to account for all four fronts in battle. And Richard Baxter actually said that, that when it comes to the spiritual realm and to dealing with evil, we need to have, uh, understand that there are multiple fronts there as well. In one of his books, he actually talks about how to counsel somebody who's, who's dealing with what he would have called melancholy or, or depression. And he said, and when you're looking at somebody who's, who's dealing with depression, there, there may indeed be a psychological reason that they're dealing with melancholy. There may be something going on in their mind or, or, or in their emotional life that needs to be attended to. Or maybe there's, there's a physiological reason why this person is, is prone to melancholy. Maybe they need more rest. Maybe they need more sleep. Maybe they need more medical treatment of some kind. He says they, they may uh, be melancholy and downcast because of a moral problem. Maybe they're feeling guilty about some sort of unconfessed sin or some past wrong. And you need to understand that if you're going to effectively minister to this person. He's like, but last but not least, there could be something demonic there. There could be a spiritual cause for their melancholy and their depression. But here's the interesting thing that Baxter says. He says, but most likely, when you sit across from another person, when you're trying to minister to them, it is a combination of all four. And the wise person, the good Christian, the proper minister, is going to attend to all four. You see, acknowledging the reality of spiritual evil doesn't give us a simplistic approach to evil in the world. It gives us a very, very complex and nuanced approach to it. It helps us to understand that there are realities taking place that are far beyond our, our own limitations and capabilities. And that if we're properly going to address them and diagnose them, we need to have a much more robust approach. Because evil in the world is complex. It defies simplistic solutions and simplistic answers. And so we need to recognize that who we're in a battle against is we are indeed in a battle against spiritual forces, spiritual realities. But we also need to know what we're fighting. We need to know the rules of engagement, so to speak. Which is why, again, this passage from Ephesians 6 is so important. I love how, what Paul says uh, here. He says, Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, right here in verse 11, we understand what we are fighting. And, and specifically, I want to look at two words that, uh, that we find in the English here that it actually is helpful to look at the original uh, language a little bit, to look at the Greek. Uh, the first uh, thing that he notes is we are uh, fighting against the schemes of the devil. And now we've, we've kind of turned the devil into a title or almost into a name, but, but actually uh, it comes from uh, a noun, uh, which is diabolos. And it's not really so much a name as, as it describes a type of person. In Greek, diabolos means liar or slanderer. And so what uh, Paul is saying is he's saying, hey, when, when, when we are fighting against the devil, what we need to recognize is that we're dealing with someone who is by nature a liar, who is going to use lies in order to uh, confuse us, in order to distract us, in order to divide us. That this is ultimately a battle of truth against falsehood. And that there are certain lies that, that one of his primary tactics that he's going to use is he's going to use deception in order to distract, to divide, and to destroy. But the second thing uh, that is uh, noted here is he talks about the schemes of the devil. And the Greek word there is methodia. And, and that word actually doesn't just mean schemes, it means well-laid plans. Well-laid plans. Carefully thought-out lies that are designed to divide, distract, and to destroy. And anybody who's uh, been a, a fisherman, anyone who's ever gone hunting, or anybody who's simply tried to trap a mouse in your house, knows that the very best traps are laid in the places where the quarry is most likely to go, in the places where we're most vulnerable. Which is why I appreciate the words of Thomas Brooks, another 17th century writer who said this, Whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and to their inclinations. See, we need to understand that the devil is going to use well-placed, well-thought-out and designed deceptions that are going to hook us right where we're most vulnerable. Which is why to engage in this battle means that we also need to engage in a little bit of self-awareness. To know what our weaknesses are. To be aware of what hooks us. To understand the ways in which the devil might use those in order to distract, divide, and destroy. And so throughout this series, we're going to be looking at, well, what are the ways in which maybe we're vulnerable what are the ways in which maybe we play into his schemes rather than naming them for what they are and being able to effectively resist them? But that brings us to the final point, and that is how to fight. How to fight. That's really going to be the theme of the rest of this series, is how to fight. But I at least want to make two points from this text for this morning. First thing that we need to recognize about how to fight, is to realize that we do not fight alone. Many scholars reading this passage about the armor of God uh, believe that Paul was writing this while he was under house arrest. And the way house arrest worked in the Roman world is you actually would have had a guard assigned to you and they were chained to you night and day so that wherever you went, the guard went with you. So Paul was probably looking at a Roman soldier as he wrote about the armor of God. The vision that he had in his head was of the Roman military. 
But here's what's fascinating that I think we often miss when we read this passage. Typically, when we read this passage, we read it individualistically. We read, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil or the devil's schemes, and we read that as, okay, I need to put on the armor because I'm in this battle solo. But that's not the way Roman legions fought. Roman legions were only triumphant because they fought side by side. Because they fought in different uh, legionnaire um, uh, formations. They would often fight shield to shield, with the person who was on your right was the one protecting you as they held their shield in their left hand. They would stand side by side that when a barrage of arrows was coming, it was the responsibility of the line behind to put their shields up over the top of the line in front to form basically this armored formation. The only way legionaries succeeded in their battles is if they fought together. And what's so fascinating about how Paul writes this text is that every time he uses the word you, he uses it in the plural. Now we don't have a plural you in English, unless you come from Texas. Because if you come from Texas, you know that there is a plural of you, and that's y'all. And the best way to maybe read this passage, and you're never going to read Ephesians 6 the same again, is to say, y'all put on the full armor of God so y'all can take y'all's stand against the devil's schemes. That's literally what Paul is saying. He's saying you together get suited up. You together fight this battle side by side. See, the the beautiful gift, one of the great gifts that God gives us when we wage this battle is that we don't wage it alone. We wage it in community. That we wage it together as a church. That we bear one another's burdens. That we stand side by side and defend one another. That is our first and our primary calling when it comes to this battle is to stand shield to shield, side by side by side, which is why Christian community of all places should be the place where we are not only transparent and honest with one another about our own weaknesses, our own failings, and our own shortcomings, but that we are the quickest to defend and to protect one another when those things come to light. One of the greatest sadnesses that I had of 2020 was watching on social media as Christians tore into Christians. That is not how we fight. We fight shield to shield, side by side. And when there's a disagreement among us, we approach that disagreement face to face as brother to sister, as sister to brother, as person to person, giving one another the benefit of the doubt, showing each other dignity, and recognizing that we're all actually on the same side. Likewise, when somebody in our small group shares a struggle that they're wrestling with, we pray for them, we support them, and we ask, how can I help you? How can I support you? How can I fight side by side with you as you struggle through this together? That's the way we fight. We fight together. But the second thing is we fight with someone else's strength. Love what Paul says here, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Or more literally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We need to recognize that it's not our power by which we're going to fight this battle. We're going to fight it with the strength of God who goes with us because the victory and the battle are his. 
And throughout this series, each one of these pieces of armor is something that God has given us. We're going to look at that in greater detail, but we need to recognize that it's only by depending on God that we will have victory. But here's the beautiful thing. The victory is promised. Listen to what Paul writes in 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The promise is is that when we rely on God and his strength, we are able to stand. That when we rely on him and his power, the power of evil, the forces of evil cannot overcome us. It's his strength, not our own, which is why I love the graphic of this series (laughs) and why we chose it the way we did. (laughs) Because this is us, a bunch of kids, people on our own, not able to defend ourselves, and yet with the armor of God, we are strong because his promise is that that strength goes with us. We need to know who we're fighting. We need to know what we're fighting against, but ultimately we need to know how to fight. And the promise is that we don't fight alone. We fight together as the church, being led forward in the strength and power of our God who is himself our Savior and our Lord, our power, our might, and our strength, in whose name we say, thanks be to God. Amen.